I hate being late. When I'm running late for something, I, I just feel the stress rising. And if I'm driving and I know that I'm running late, I, I feel my hands getting tighter on the grip of the steering wheel. And I confess I become a little more frustrated and irritated at all the other drivers who seem to be making it their mission to get in my way. Drives me crazy. And then, of course, there's the kind of the embarrassment of showing up and having to walk into a room where everybody else has already gathered. I hate it. Thankfully, for the most part, I am usually early to things. In fact, probably 98% of the time I'm early and not just a little bit early. In fact, my kids are accustomed to us showing up and having to sit in the parking lot in the car waiting for everybody else to arrive. But there are certainly some things that we don't want to be late for. Don't want to be late for church, just saying. Some of us maybe need to work on that, but... There are some things in our life in particular that we do not want to be late for. We don't want to be late for a job interview. Not a good idea. Uh, You you don't want to be late uh, to work on your first day of work in a new job. You don't want to be late to a surprise birthday party. You don't want to be late to a wedding. And you most definitely do not want to be late to a funeral. But this morning, as we open God's Word together, as we continue the series that we're calling Conversations with Jesus, we're going to look together for a few minutes at a passage of Scripture found in John chapter 11, where Jesus was late to a funeral on purpose. And what we're going to discover is that what He had to say And the way in which he ministered there not only brought incredible comfort to those who were grieving, but actually has a lot to say to you and I wherever we may be and whatever season we may find ourselves in this morning. So I want to invite you right now to go ahead and grab your Bible to open it up and join me in John chapter 11. You're going to want to have the text in front of you so that we can follow along together. John Chapter 11, John 11. We begin reading in verse 1 where it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant just taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What we see here is this passage begins as that God works in the way and in the time that will most clearly cause his glory to be seen. You'll notice that as it begins, we're introduced to this person who's ill, this man by the name of Lazarus, and uh, uh, to his two sisters, to Mary and to Martha. Now, it's interesting, in verse 2, we have it recorded here, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, It's interesting that John should put this here because he's not yet told us that story. He's not yet got to that account. In fact, it doesn't come until the very next chapter in John chapter 11. But I think the reason that he puts it here is that she was so well known throughout the church that as soon as her name was mentioned, it's like, oh yeah, we know her. And so, uh, Lazarus is ill, Mary and Martha, the sisters, send message to Jesus because this sickness, this illness is severe. And so, messengers are dispatched, and when they come, Jesus hears the message, and he responds to them and probably sends back word with them. But he announces this illness does not lead to death. Actually, a better translation here is end in. This illness does not end in death. He says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you were here last week, you uh, uh, probably heard Pastor Matt talking about the fact that when Jesus was getting ready to heal this blind man, and uh, the disciples said, so Jesus, uh, which one sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus' answer to them was interesting. He said, neither one, but this is for the glory of God. And we see that similar announcement here. Now, what's really interesting is that as the text continues, uh, as we've just heard, um, it's very clear that Jesus loves that he has this close relationship to this family, to these two sisters and this brother. In fact, in verse 5, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 6, it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. It seems kind of peculiar because I don't know about you, but if you were to get the call that a loved one, that somebody that you cared deeply about was, was terribly ill, perhaps even at the point of death, which is where Lazarus was, um, most of us would probably drop whatever we were doing so that we could go there to be with them. How does Jesus respond? Keeps on doing what he's doing for another two days before he heads over. Now, one of the things that we need to understand, and it's very interesting in this passage, is that, um, that Jesus wasn't delaying in order to give time for Lazarus to die. He wasn't waiting around so that Lazarus would die. Uh, we discover a little bit later in the passage, and we'll get to this, that when Jesus does arrive in Bethany, that Lazarus has actually already been dead and in the tomb for four whole days. 
So when we do a little bit of math on this, it helps us to understand because you see, um, the place of Bethany was about a one solid day's travel away from where Jesus and the disciples were ministering out in the wilderness where John had been baptizing. And, uh, and so it would have taken the messengers a whole day to get there. There's one day. And then Jesus' delay is by two days. So that's day two and day three. And then it would have taken, yep, <laughs> and then it would have taken another whole day for him and the disciples to travel to Bethany. So, so he arrives four days later. And so what seems to have happened was that Mary and Martha dispatched the messengers, and very shortly after they go out with the message, Lazarus dies. So, in fact, Lazarus is already dead before this mess- the messengers even arrive at Jesus. But we'll talk about the significance of why he waits two days in a few minutes. But again, as the passage continues, we see that after these two days, Jesus then announces to the disciples, we're going to Judea again, and uh, they kind of are a little puzzled. And that, um, uh, Jesus, do you not remember that we were there? very recently, and they tried to kill you, and you want to go back there again? In fact, we see this right at the end of John chapter 10, and, and, and we see that Jesus kind of walks right out of their midst as they're trying to kill him. And the disciples kind of, not surprisingly, say, um, is it really a good idea to go back there again? But Jesus answers them, verse 9, and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And so uh, all through John's gospel, we see this, this idea of light and darkness, of day and night. And, and, and the point that Jesus is making here is that there is a time for working. And this is the day. This is the time for working. There is a time where work ceases. But this is the time for working, and in, in, in Jesus' economy, um, even the threat of death is not of fear to him because his time has not yet come, a phrase that is used repeatedly through John's gospel. And one of the things that we need to understand with this is that right here we actually see two time occurrences in this passage. We see the delay of two days, and then we see Jesus talking about the right time to be doing the work. And we're reminded of this truth that God works in the way and at the time that will most clearly cause his glory to be seen. See, there are probably some of us who find ourselves perhaps even now in a season where it feels like we just don't understand why is God not doing his part right now? I've been praying and I've been waiting to get a job because I have been out of work for so long. I, I, I've been seeking God and, and, and the pending date of these bills coming due is getting closer and closer. I've been longing for this relationship, and it still hasn't materialized. Where is God in this? What is he doing? I don't understand his timing. The truth is, 
that God will not be manipulated. He will not be rushed. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus always working at his own pace, never being rushed by others. And while it's true here in this passage, it's also true in our lives. We have a God who works for his own glory, who accomplishes his good purposes, and they are good. But he always does it in his own time, and his time is best. In fact, I love the way that Bruce Milne puts this. He writes, his delays do not contradict his love. He loves us as fully and as truly when he remains across the Jordan to minister to others' needs as when he journeys to Bethany and ministers to ours. And God's delays are not final. He will come in his own time and way. No doubt it will frequently be later than we would have chosen. From his divine perspective, however, it will be the right time. God is the best of timekeepers. He created time. He is never late for his appointments. What a great reminder. And so I don't know if there's something in your life right now and you feel like you're in that place of waiting. And you kind of, God, when are you going to show up? I want to remind you, I want to encourage you. God knows and he sees and he understands and he will do his good work at just the right time. He does it not for our convenience, but for his glory. As the passage continues forward, we see now uh, that uh, Jesus and the disciples begin and they travel to Bethany. In verse 17, we read, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What we see here is that Christ reveals the greatness of who he is and the beauty of his faithful promises so that we might respond to him in faith. See, when Jesus arrives here in Bethany, Mary, uh, Martha comes out, and we see this, this wonderful conversation that's taking place. She starts off by saying, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And I, I don't think that she's complaining. I don't think that she's blaming him at all. I think she's just grieving. 
And she's acknowledging that things would have been different. It's kind of an expression of trust, of, of, of confidence that she had in Jesus. Not one of blame. And, and she goes on and she says something very interesting. She says, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask him. I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit perplexed by this. I don't know what she had in her mind when she said that. It's certainly a statement of confidence, a statement of trust in Jesus. But I don't think that the context allows us to consider that she had any grasp that her brother would rise from the dead right there. But Jesus responds to her. And says, your brother will rise again. And Martha gives this wonderful and theologically accurate response. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She was a good Jew. She understood the promise. She knew that she was looking to something beyond just this. But then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, all through John's gospel, we see on seven occasions that Jesus uses this phrase, I am. And each time it's a a reference back to the book of Exodus where Moses standing before the burning bush being commissioned by God, being sent back to rescue the people out of Egypt. He says, but but, if if they ask me what is the name of your God, what do I say? And God said, say to them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. And so when Jesus uses these I am statements, he is declaring his divinity. He is declaring that he is God. And here he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not just saying, I resurrect people and give life. He's saying, I am the source. I am the substance of it. It is in and from me alone. He goes on, he gives this incredible promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, for the follower of Christ, for those who have put their faith in him and him alone, when a believer dies... They pass through the curtain of this life immediately into the very presence of the Savior and eternal life with Him. He goes on and he says, uh, says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die again. This is not a promise. This is not saying you will not face physical death. But what we need to understand is that for those of us who are in Christ, it is not a matter of life death, and then eternal life. From the Christian perspective, from, from Christ's perspective, it is from life to life. And his promise is certain and faithful and sure. 
And we can have a great confidence in this because the I am, the one who is the resurrection and the life, has declared the certainty of this. It's interesting that he makes this statement and then he says to her, do you believe this? You see, we have to understand wherever we, see, wherever we come face to face with Jesus, wherever there is a declaration of the person of Christ, it is not for the sake of collecting information. It is for the sake of eliciting a response from us. Martha was not to stand there and hear him say this and say, oh, well, that's interesting. Thank you. I, I feel like I know you better now. No. Do you believe this? And she makes this incredible statement of faith. It's interesting because oftentimes we, uh, we think of the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and we tend to think of, uh, of Mary as being the more spiritually sensitive one. You may be familiar with the account in Luke's gospel where where Mary is sat listening to Jesus, sat at his feet where Martha is busy doing all of the preparations. Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better way. But here we see the depth of faith that Martha has, and she declares, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She gets it. She sees. You know, this truly is such a powerful reminder for us who are believers. Because you see, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we do not need to fear death. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, We do not need to grieve as those who have no hope when a believing loved one dies. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we can live with a joy and and, and with a confidence because we understand that this is not all that there is. You know, people uh, spend so much time trying to grasp on and keep a hold of youth. They, they spend so much time uh, uh, fearing what may come after death. And, and we who are in Christ can live with great confidence. And you know, one of the greatest testimonies that believers throughout the generations have had in the midst of a watching, unbelieving world is that they die well, that there is a peace and a confidence and a grace. Because if you're in Christ, death is not the end. In fact, it is a joyful journey into the eternal presence of Christ, which will be better by far. We understand And so even throughout the generations, those who have been brutally put to death because of their faith, those who have been martyred, have often borne incredible witness to the truthfulness of the gospel in that they have died well with confidence in Christ. And those who we might consider to be just kind of average day-to-day followers of Christ as they have stepped into eternity have done so with a peace and with a joyfulness that is a witness to others. 
We see this. We see as the passage continues, we won't take time to read through all of it for the sake of time, but uh, we see then that Martha goes to get her sister Mary and to bring her back. And, and when, when Mary comes, uh, she's being followed by all of the other mourners because they think that she's going to the, to the tomb. And, and, and she actually says the same thing to Jesus as Martha first said, Lord, if you had just been here, our brother would not have died. You almost get the sense that they had probably talked about this during the past few days as they mourned together. But we don't see much of a conversation taking place there with Mary because she is so overwhelmed with grief. In fact, the text uh, refers to, uh, to what she was doing as, as wailing. And not only her, but the others who were there as well at this time and in this culture, uh, uh, the, the, the mourning that took place was very loud. And then we come to an interesting passage It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. You know, this is the verse that every Awana kid wants to have as their memory verse. The shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. What's really interesting here is it's understandable that Mary and others would be grieving. It's understandable because, you know, uh, when somebody, when a loved one dies, even though if they are a follower of Christ, uh, we have confidence that we will see them again. Uh, It's understandable that there's a grieving because there's this separation. There's this knowledge that at least for now, until we pass into glory, we won't see them again. But that's, that's not the case with Jesus. I mean, just wait five minutes, Jesus, and, and he's going to be right back with you again. So I, I want you to consider that Jesus isn't weeping because he's grieving. He's not weeping because he's sad that he won't see Lazarus again because, well, I don't want to give the end of the story away, but he's going to see him in a minute. No, actually, the language that is used here when it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and deeply and greatly troubled actually speaks of anger. He was weeping from anger. Huh. How can that be? What does that mean? Well, there are some who have suggested that he was angry at the unbelief of those who were standing around mourning. I don't agree with that. I don't see how that fits the situation there. I think that the the way that we're supposed to understand this is more of the fact that he was angry at death. You see, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he proclaimed these things to be good, death was not a part of the original equation. Sin led to death. And Jesus, as he stands there amidst those who are grieving, seems to have a holy anger over the fact that this is not the way that I intend for it to be. This is the the penalty of sin that he is standing before, and there is a holy fury against death. 
And it is right and it is appropriate for us in the midst of grieving at times to to cry out and to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet also to rejoice in the knowledge of the fact that we look forward to our eternal home where there is no more sickness and no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. And then, verse 38, we see Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, said to, uh, Martha the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I actually like the way that the old King James puts this better. Uh, it says, uh, Lord, uh, by this time he stinketh greatly. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Stinketh greatly. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, I want you to notice, this is the second time in this passage that we have explicitly been told that that he had been in the tomb for four days. Earlier on, we were told that Jesus delayed two days just to go, why? Why? Well, certainly because he does things in his own time and for his own glory. But there seems to be a real significance that John doesn't want us to miss here. And one of the things that's helpful for us to understand is that there's a widely documented fact that at this time in ancient Israel, many people held a superstitious belief that when a person died, their spirit kind of hovered around and circled the body looking for an opportunity to re-enter it and for the body to be revived. But they believed that as soon as decomposition began to set in, then the spirit then would leave. And so even for those who held to this superstitious belief, if this man, Lazarus, who had now been dead for four days and stunketh greatly... If he were to rise from the dead, then it could be undeniable that it was a work of God and not some mere revival. Jesus again comforts Martha and says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now notice again, we see some repetition here. Back when Jesus first gets the, me- the, the message, uh, he says, this illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When he's talking with his disciples, uh, he, he says to them, um, uh, Lazarus has died and for your sake, this is verse 15, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Uh, When he's speaking to Martha, he says, do you believe this? And now again, he says, believe and see the glory of God. Because you see, it's possible to see God's work, but to miss him. But the glory of God is on display to anyone who believes. Oftentimes, we come to John chapter 11, and we think that this chapter is about Lazarus rising from the dead. 
It's not. That's not the primary purpose of this chapter. The primary purpose of what we see in this text is that those who believe get to see the glory of God. And Jesus continues. They take away the stone and Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So in other words, he's praying to the Father here. It seems that he has already prayed quietly uh, and and, uh, and, and asked for the, the resurrecting of Lazarus, but he's praying here publicly, and he's not praying about that. He is, he is thanking God, that, he, that God the Father, that he has been heard, and he is praying in such a way that everybody else hears because he's praying that they might believe. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And with the authority and power of his word, this man who had been dead for four days, this man who stanketh greatly, rose and walked out of the tomb. Folks, we have a Savior who is unmatched in power and authority. We have a Lord who speaks and the dead are raised. This man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And as the text continues, we're not going to go there right now, but we see that some of those who witnessed failed to see the glory of God because they did not believe. There were many people who saw the miracle, but only some of them saw the glory. What's the glory that this passage is talking about? It's Christ himself. It's the fullness of who he is. It is a recognition. It is an understanding. It is a a comprehension of who Jesus is and the significance of that. That's what they were to believe. That's how they were to see the glory. What do we do with this passage? How do we respond to it? We certainly were reminded of the fact that we need to trust his timing. God is at work, and he works always to accomplish his good purposes in his perfect timing. Friends, take comfort in that. Take confidence in that. Be comforted by the amazing and the faithful promises of God that find their source and, yes, their certain fulfillment in Christ. We who are believers should live with great confidence because we know whom we have believed 
He's the resurrection and the life. He's the one who speaks and the dead are raised. How can we not live with confidence when we have a Savior like that? But listen, for some of us, for some of us, how we respond to this passage is that we've got to be careful that we don't just collect information about Jesus and yet miss his glory by failing to respond in faith. See, some of us here this morning may well be in that place where we're just kind of accumulating knowledge about Jesus. Some of us may come because we're like, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in this stuff. We might listen to and participate in Bible studies just sort of to, 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 to get more knowledge. But just as Jesus said to Martha, do you believe this? There is a necessary response that must be made to the person and power of Jesus Christ. What will you do with Because you can accumulate knowledge. You can even see the working of his power. But if you don't believe, you will miss his glory. So I would pray that if that's you this morning, if you you have never responded to Jesus Christ, to who he is and what he has done in, in coming and bearing your sins, paying your debt, dying your death, raising to life again to extend an invitation that you can be a part of his family. If you've never responded to that, do not leave here today. Do not miss the glory. Friends, know this. God works in the way and at the time that will most clearly cause his glory to be seen. But it is possible to see his work and yet miss him. May that not be us, but may we respond as Martha did. Yes, yes, Lord, I believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of God, my Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word, for the reminder of your truth, and for the reminder of the greatness of your power. Lord, we believe that your word is true, that indeed, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you for the sure and certain promise that we have in you. Would you teach us, Lord, to walk with confidence trusting you, trusting your perfect timing, trusting your perfect ways, not grasping at our own efforts to hold on to this life, but rejoicing in the knowledge that you know our days and that what awaits us is greater than we can even begin to comprehend. But Father, I do pray that should there be any here this morning who have been curious, who have perhaps been gathering information that today would be the day that your spirit would prompt them to respond to that question, do you believe? And that with all that they are, that they would cry out, yes, and receive your gift of forgiveness and life and take a hold of the promises that can be theirs in Christ. We ask all of this with thanksgiving in the name of this holy 
powerful and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord.